Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. But talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome, everyone, to the 826LA Writing Panel Series, an informal chat about, tonight, television writing and the business of writing for television. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio. Find out more at thrillingadventurehour.com. We have a great lineup for you tonight, and let's get right to them. Our first panelist uh, started on Nickelodeon shows, including All That and Keenan and Kel. Uh, before transitioning to one hours like the 4400 and Leverage, she's currently the co-executive producer on Sci-Fi's Eureka. Please welcome Amy Berg. Don't freak out. Uh, our next panelist worked her way through the ranks, starting as an assistant. Uh, she worked on shows such as The Shield. The Cleaner, uh, most recently Memphis Beat, and she's currently working as a writer on the new Stars series, Boss, starring Kelsey Grammer, Angelina Burnett. Uh, and finally, uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, and every week, uh, well, nearly every week, I'm not as big a nerd as you guys, but every week I would visit New England Comics, and uh, when you go to New England Comics in Boston, you uh, there's the character of the Tick is ubiquitous, and uh, so I clearly bought them, and the Tick was everything you wanted a comic book to be. It was funny, and it was smart, uh, and weird, and uh, just... Uh, taught me a lot personally about storytelling. Uh, so it was really with a sense of this proprietary pride that I later went on to see the creator of The Tick, his name pop up on shows like Angel, The Venture Brothers, and Firefly. Uh, and I'm proud to currently be working with him on Supernatural. Please welcome Ben Edlin. Welcome. Yes. Please adjust the mic so it's uh, comfortable for you. Um, and don't forget to talk into it. Right. You guys. Hi. 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 This is not my usual chair. Oh. oh. Podcast listeners. Um, just know I'm not in my usual chair. It looks weird. It's about to get uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, let's talk about breaking in. And I want to start with Angelina because I think you've had sort of a traditional breaking in story. Uh, take us through... So, if there is such a thing. If there is yes. such a thing, absolutely. Uh, but it seems a sort of attainable one also. Uh, so take us through the process of how you broke in and became a professional writer. Um, well, I got... I, I'm really lucky. I came out... I went to NYU for, uh, for theater. Got a BFA in drama. And uh, I came out here to write and direct movies. I was a total snob. I had no interest in TV. Why, why would anybody want to write TV? Um, and I'm very blessed that I have a father who's sort of in the business. He does music for movies. So uh, I came out here with my foot in the door, which was nice. Um, but once you get that need to hire job, they call them need to hires, 
You find out when you show up in the production office for the first day, nobody wants you there. <laughs> they are bitter and pissed off because they, you know, they had to beg, borrow, and steal for their job, and they've been working their asses off, and here you waltz in because, you know, your parent knew someone. So you have to work your ass off twice as hard to prove that you deserve to be there. So I feel like it kind of balances out. I had my foot in the door, but I had to work harder. Um, and then once you get that first gig... Uh, and however you, whether you go to bars or parties or mixers or whatever, things like this and meet people, take cards, get email addresses and just nudge and nudge and nudge until you get your foot in the door that first time, then it just rolls. As long as you work hard and are nice to people and PS being nice to people is, is key. Uh, people want to hire you. They want to work with you. And I, you laugh, but there's a lot of assholes on every level of this business. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> I didn't want to say her name, but she's a dick. Um, so I did probably three or four years assisting in various capacities on movies. And I was working on the movie Seabiscuit for Gary Ross. And uh, it was an incredible experience. I learned a ton. Gary was very generous with his process. But he's, you know, he's a big deal feature director. And when you're sucked into the orbit of a person like that, you lose your life. You no longer have your own existence. And I couldn't take it. I had to get out. So I started sending out my resume. And I sent out my resume to a TV gig. I didn't know what show it was. They don't say sometimes on the UTA job list. They're just like, you know, <laughs> you need this experience and it's a TV show. Guess. <laughs> um, and I got a call to come in and interview to work for the executive producer of The Shield. Now, I hadn't seen The Shield. And I knew it was a cop show. And I was like, man, I don't like cop shows. I don't want to work on a cop show. How, how long had the show been on at this point? Uh, they were two seasons. They were going into their third, shooting their third season. And I went in and I sat down uh, with Scott Brazil. And I knew the second I met him that not only was he going to hire me, but that this job was going to change my life. And it did. Um, being a part of that S.H.I.E.L.D. crew showed me what television could be and how incredibly creative and generative and how fast it is. You work in feature development, man, and you're spending just years on the same fucking movie that never gets made, ever. A thousand rewrites, a thousand writers. You sit on these notes calls and you're just suffering for these poor people. And you can't say anything. You just have to sit through it. Here, you write it, you shoot it, you cut it, you air. You write it, it's, it's amazing. So um, I spent almost three years with Scott Brazil. He is, hands down, one of the all-time greats in this business. He, anybody you meet who's worked with him will tell you the same. Um, and he, um, he unfortunately passed away, and I had to get the hell out of there because it broke my heart. Um, but it was, it was continually getting those assistant jobs, and with each person I met, collecting these contacts... It's all about collecting contacts and being, again, being kind to everyone because people remember you when you bring them that cup of coffee with a smile. It seems totally demeaning and horrible, but I'm telling you, people remember you. And I got a call. I went to, during the strike, I went to work on the Obama campaign, which is another thing that changed my life, but that's a whole other story. And I got a call from a writer who I had met through Scott. He'd been developing a project with Scott, and I'd given him some notes um, that he appreciated and thought were smart. And he called me asking for a sample because he had a show that was going to go as soon as the strike was over and he wanted a female writer and he didn't have one yet. And I was so wrapped up in the Obama campaign. I was like, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you right now. I'm too busy. <laughs> and I got, I'm changing the world. <laughs> I got the phone and I was like, wait a minute, I really do want to get this guy elected, but I might have just completely shot myself in the foot. So I sent him my script. Um, 
And it took off from there. I got the writer's assistant gig with a guaranteed freelance. And I made my agent call and make them promise me a freelance because I was so sick of being an assistant and not getting my shot. Um, and it, you know, I was staffed the next year and it just, it kept rolling. Um, and I know that a lot of people have different experiences that they get that first shot and there's this long sort of laborious break where they don't know where the next gig is going to come from. I, I feel really blessed that I didn't have that experience. I just worked my ass off when I was given the opportunity. And it took eight years. It took eight years of getting people coffee. Um, it was worth it. <laughs> so that's the short of it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Sure. Uh, ben, let's go over to you. Let's talk about how uh, you went from a writer and artist to a television writer. Yeah. Um, well, it's a sort of a it's a different road um, because <laughs> I started making a comic book, uh, and I was about four towns. Which New England comics did you go to? I went to the Brookline one. And I went to the uh, oh yeah okay. Cleveland Circle. That was way out. That was exotic from where I was. <laughs> we went to Brockton anyway. Like. Uh, I mean, I really was four towns away from the place that began a kind of a ladder that allowed me to ascend into first children's television on uh, Fox Kids with uh, The Tick as a cartoon. But I mean, my, my initial... <coughs> there is still uh, a means by which if you have the abilities... I mean, what, you know, it, it, it could be writing and you get associated with an artist. But if you make a comic book, it, there is still a means by which you can kind of achieve a sort of like rickety rope <laughs> suspension bridge from that act into some level of production. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the, uh, the straight and narrow way to go. Uh, I think eight years of making coffee makes a lot more kind of straight up sense, really. Um, but there are means by which this can happen because of like San Diego exists as this sort of um, uh, strange uh, merchant's like market now of um, properties and strange things can happen but I mean I wouldn't put that forward as a guarantee of anything but that's how I got in was by um, writing and drawing a comic book that was right at the tail end of what was called the black and white explosion in the 80s that was supposed to be done and it had just enough charm to kind of seep in over very irregular intervals. I mean, if you were shopping for it at that time, you would have found that it almost never came up. Um, <laughs> over five years, there were 12 issues. It was uh, one more testament to how I get things not quite done. Um, but that began a kind of flow that got me through film school. I sold it as a cartoon. It became something... I mean, I would say that... Uh, it is absolutely true. Um, I think one of the like the, the universal baselines of this business actually this is a very human business as much as it has um, it's like a human little petri dish of interaction that's got this giant weight pending over it from uh, commerce. Like the like the business side wants to crush it occasionally. Like they they turn the microscope too far down and they crush the side. That's me. Don't worry could, about um, Could you extend this metaphor? Uh, no, no, seriously, it goes further. Oh, oh, I wasn't supposed to do that. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, really, like, that's what it's like. They're, well, how did you do that? How did you achieve that osmosis? Let me... And then you're... That's what ends almost every show, really, when you think about it. But, like... That's a great analogy. We're, we're, thank you. You're uh, welcome. Um, but, yes, yeah, so... Uh, in this... People remember um, human interaction. They actually really remember those moments where people are honest with them, where people actually say, I mean, I've done better for my career. I mean, I've moved from cartoons to primetime, and that was not a guaranteed leap. And I could have definitely fallen out of the sieve at the bottom of primetime. 
But I honestly, every time I'm, uh, every time we get a new problem in the world of story making, I do the same thing, and this is really good if you can do it. I get really upset. There's a wrongness. First of all, it's not done. Um, it's already not done. And then the other one is that there's the problems with the engineering, and it must be dealt with. So there's like a earnest desire to not put crap up on the screen is like a real important thing. They want to buy it from you because they don't care. They will put crap up or they'll put not crap. They don't even know the difference in general. Some do, but they need earnest people who want to create stuff and make things that are better than like the norm. And then when it comes to the very high pressure uh, activity of making this stuff, it's like a military operation all the time. It's a very involved um, thing. When people are nice, when people are honest, when people are, um, they, they bring some humanity into it, you might get a boot heel in the face in that 1984 way. Um, that could happen until the end of time. That's not impossible, but odds are you'll find other, other people in the process who really are, they are sincere. And that's really what makes anything worth watching, usually. Occasional freakouts. Was it was it presumed when you sold the comic book that you would be involved with it? Because you're a pretty young guy, and you didn't the, have a lot of uh, the, for, a for a cartoon. Yeah. No. Well, it was. I mean, it was a it was a contractual obligation of them to recognize me as a consultant, mm -hmm. which is one of those beautiful amorphous terms. Um, it's a bullshit can, title. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. Are you consulting and, on something? Yes, now? I am. Oh, have you been enjoying it? Is it? Uh, yeah. You go like, well, well, they can say anything about me. It's more like you just make you, and then maybe it's about um, making yourself available for dismissal. And there's a certain amount of money in that. But um, like, it just happened to be that I was very persistent, and I kept coming to all the meetings, and it just I had some things to offer because ultimately the tick in its. I mean, it's just a very sensitive sensibility that you can't really just... Uh, it was very fortunate that the people involved actually understood enough to... Well, this is sounding arrogant. They understood enough <laughs> to allow me in. No, but, uh, but coming did. from the creator, I think that, that makes sense. That seems like to common have that sense. Point of view. Yeah. Common sense. A little common. <laughs> it is a bit common. You're right. Um, before we move on to Amy, uh, just tell me briefly. Uh, it's cool. I don't need to talk. No, you do. You must. You'll get your chance. You're next. Um, how did the leap to primetime happen? It came primarily, I think, ultimately it happened because Barry Sonnenfeld almost died in a plane crash. And I think he, stu this is how I picture it, he stumbled out of the wreck. Because he really did, the plane like landed funny and he gets very involved in shit. So like when he had that, um, like, I, my feeling is that he kind of, two things connected. His, his daughter's, I think it was his daughter, was really into the tick as a cartoon. And then his assistant was really pushing it forward. Actually, someone, associate producer, producer he worked with, really pushing it forward. And then somehow, near death, he came stumbling out. This is, again, my picture. And he said, oh, I got to call that guy. And he called me. Um, and I was, like, doing a, oh, my God, I was a fifth draft of, um, I had sold um, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians again uh, to Universal. And I was writing a 160-page oh screenplay that was more like some kind of like uh, oh, uh, Victor Hugo probably would have not in I mean like like a bad Victor Hugo like oh Victor Hugo's ghost is making me write this longer like uh, um, 
was how I was handling it. So he called and he was like, oh, I want to make the tick. Ben! Yeah. Hey, I want to make the tick. I, Barry, I, I'm fond of you. But uh, I'm talking to the TV. <laughs> hey, um, and basically, uh, he uh, convinced me to come out and take a look at it. And so that became the beginning of... I had to meet Patrick Warburton, but when I met Patrick Warburton, I thought maybe this could be done. Um, it, it turns out that in ways it can be done, in other ways it can't be done. Um, but it was quite a ride, and that started a credit line, and I almost mean that commercially, like a, like a credit line that allowed me to get good interviews and stuff in prime time. Otherwise, I would have, I mean, you'll find that each strata of the business ignores the presence of every other strata of the business, at least for a certain point. Now it's better, actually. I think there's more, you know, that sand art. There's more, like, red. It's, it's starting to, the stratas are starting to pull together. But yeah, we're not as strictly adhered to, no. this is what an hour is, this is yeah. what a cop show is, this is it's what a comedy is. a little is. more loose, and that's good. Um, but uh, at that time, it was still pretty locked in. Not obviously enough. I got in. But yeah. You showed them. I showed up. Um, yeah. Amy, we have uh, the panel that we did a few years ago that we're going to put out as a podcast. So we no, it's don't, cool. We don't want to hear from you. I pretty much said it all then. Yeah. You guys don't need to know anything what, about me, right? We actually, if you could very briefly tell you're breaking in, but what I really want to hear about... Um, tell the brief version, but what I really want to hear about is uh, your transition to your current job. Okay. And uh, because you're very happy now. <laughs> I'm not It's embarrassing, isn't I'm it? I'm not implying that she was unhappy before. I'm saying she's very happy now. <laughs> like you really like your show. I love you know, my show. Like, I, like we hang out. Listen, I'm going on the record. We hang out. Uh, and she, and Amy genuinely talks about her show. And Sometimes it's a bit much, but <laughs> she really likes it, and I think that's that's really like you don't get that a lot. We from talked someone. about my show too. While we you, did, yeah. see, you don't get that a lot from within, someone within who did thirty seconds the of the show. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I do. So tell tell these people who are here now uh, briefly about how you became a. I can't writer. tell the brief version because Ben is sitting here, and he would be very interested to know. I'm right. very interested. Go ahead. You know, it's what? a Joss Whedon story. We'll cut it out. Oh, we'll cut it out. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. <Come> <laughs> So when I when I first moved to town, um, I got in a job uh, as an assistant on some uh, a Nickelodeon show called All That, um, which was basically an SNL for kids. Which it was, was totally really fun. all that though, <laughs> for sure. You know what? It was somewhat all that. <laughs> it was all of all that. Um, and, but uh, I was only there a couple months, and I, I had written this Buffy spec. Um, Buffy was you know on, and like probably all of you, it's my favorite show. Um, and so. <laughs> My friend and I wrote this spec, and I sort of like asked the writers on this Nickelodeon show, "Well, what do I do with it?" And um, they're like, "Well, you know, you know, maybe we can help you get an agent, and you know, and and you know, if you want, one of us can read it." I'm like, "Well, I mean, Joss Whedon should read it." <laughs> I I said this. Um, so how do I get it to Joss Whedon? And they're like, "Well." <laughs> Silly Amy. Um, it doesn't work that way. It takes years of breaking in, and you can't possibly just get a meeting with Josh Joss Whedon. Josh Whedon can't weed. It. Yeah, I know. Can't. <laughs> and that's what they told me. They told me Joss can't read his own work. And I said, um, okay, well, then I'll just send him something else. And so I wrote a 20-page um, um, one-act play that featured um, Joss and David Greenwald and the cast of Buffy as characters. 
talking about how awesome I was. And, you know, today that's wow. fun. Yeah. That's and, pretty good. And how much they really just needed to meet me. Um, and it was a shame that they couldn't read my Buffy spec. Um, and I had some of the prop guys at Nickelodeon whittle some vampire steaks, and I bought some fake vampire teeth, and I put all of this stuff in a box, and I sent it to Joss Whedon's office. Two days later, I get a call from his assistant saying, um, Josh needs to meet you right away. <laughs> and so I go to the producers of uh, the Nickelodeon show, and I'm like, listen, um, I, need, I need Thursday afternoon off because I'm meeting Joss Whedon. And um, they haven't spoken to me since then, but... Um, no, I really did. I went. I spent the next like forty-eight hours, like trying to come up with a, as many awesome Buffy episodes as I could possibly think of. Uh, I went in there. I met with him and uh, David. I think it was he was making his transition over to Angel at the time. I don't oh, yeah. know. Um, yeah. And um, and I got, I got to meet with them. I was twenty-two. Uh, this is what's <laughs> happening to me. Um, and so I met with them. I pitched them a bunch of ideas, and they're like, "Great! So, what do you have to read?" I'm like, "Well, the only thing I've ever written in my life is this Buffy spec, and I know you guys can't read that." And they're like, "Well, we like you." And I was like, "Well, I mean, I'll sign, you know, my life if you'd want to read it." And so I signed like like a sixty page document right. that George Snyder made me sign, um, and uh, and they took the spec off my hands and uh, I get a call like a week later saying um, we love you um, we've hired this guy named Drew Goddard though but it was down between you and Drew Goddard and I'm like I don't know who this guy is but you guys are really messing out um, but but no like I so I didn't end up getting hired but I got really close and I didn't even realize it was staffing season at the time so they're like you're in the running and I was like for what I'd, I'd like to just state for the podcast that my jaw is engaged <laughs> and do it, do it her way. Don't do it my way. Um, and, and I've left the building. <laughs> so, so um, you know, so the whole Buffy thing didn't work out. Um, but my Nickelodeon uh, buddies um, <laughs> caught wind and uh, were there, like, came to me and they said, um, so listen, do you have any ideas you'd like to pitch for us? <laughs> and I said... I could think of something. And they said, okay. And then I went in the next week, pick, pitched them a bunch of stuff. Um, they bought one, um, and then they brought me on staff almost immediately thereafter. And and I've been fortunate enough to be working ever since then. <laughs> but but it's not the it's sort of like the poetic artistry of Ben Edlund's breaking in, and it's oh, not no. like the the heartwarming endurance <laughs> of, of, of your breaking in story, but um, it's... It's pure insanity. Um, I've been told by Jane Espenson I'm I'm was not allowed to actually say that story on the record anywhere, and I apologize to Jane in advance. Um, oh well. You understand but, that this is on the record. Yeah. <laughs> I, I literally, it's almost literally. No, I understand. But she, yeah, she she um, every time I've told that story and she's on a panel with me, she says, um, "Just make sure you tell them that." This is not how you should yeah. do it. Because I think she doesn't want to get weird shit in mail. <laughs> I've never met a showrunner who's like, yes, do that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ever do that. Yeah. It's, 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 people will think you're insane. And I think just sort of like, because... I don't know what about well, it's a different world now, too. ...led him to believe I wasn't insane. I think... <laughs> 
because nothing from what you've said. <laughs> Let's put it this way: I would not have called me. <laughs> I would have. But left it's, that a, it's a very different, and this is something I wanted to get into with you guys, and I'll come back to the second part of your question yep. later. Uh, but it's a very different kind of world now, where this kind of thing, which is fan fiction, is <laughs> is showing up on the internet, and you know, it, fans are much more engaged with the material with the shows that we work on than ever before I, I learned this recently <laughs> um, I wonder if you guys and, and Angelina I don't know how much you've had with this because you haven't worked on like these super fanish nerdy shows people don't really like the shows I've worked on <laughs> That is not true. No, it's not true. But they don't. But not uh, like y'all. It's yeah, not the same. It's just not. It's like not the it. same thing. I mean, like ben, ben, you've worked on these shows like Angel and Firefly. I mean, certainly the Whedon shows and Supernatural as well. Uh, what is your relationship to the fans as a writer yourself? And what is you know the room's relationship to the um, fans? Do they have to listen to them? It, no, no. Correct. But they. Uh, it's good to kind of hear them in a way, like. Uh, Actually, ever since I began, the, the internet was already creating fan response when the Tick cartoon was out. So, I mean, that was 94 to 96. Probably the latter part, 95, somewhere in there, we actually were starting to get almost immediate response, which is a very different way to proceed. It's, it's, it's new, ultimately. It's a couple of decades old at most, that you really are in ongoing dialogue while you're in the process of making these things, because these are multi-episode presentations. I always think of them as like you're writing a novel, but you publish every chapter before you can rewrite it. So like you're in this constant, like, oh, okay, well, did we actually say that? Yes, we did. Now we're accountable for that bullshit? Yes, we are. Um, and so we have to, now we have to figure out how to make that fit into the better story we've just come up with. Um, or however it moves. Like, um, you really... Uh, I think it's very good to ignore as much as possible because it's kind of a it's a it's a pinprick in the bubble of security that you generate in order to make something. I think um, one of the scariest moments I had was the publication of the first issue of the comic book because it was nothing but my attempts to make jokes, and it was being published. It was being replicated gazintite uh, about five thousand times and sent out with this intent to make itself worthy of a purchase price. And so you really, in those moments, you, you just say, all right, here is my vulnerability. I'm a pitchback, throw shit at me. And like you get into this place where, I mean, that now takes place, that took me months to figure out that anyone had ever read it. You know, Here, overnight, you just type in, like, if you want, you can. You can choose not to. I, I, I sally with both. But like, uh, you can like choose... You, Type in your name, Ben Edlin, idiot. <laughs> and then you press return, and the night after you've aired anything, you, like some, uh, someone will come up, it will come up. Oh, Ben Edlin is an idiot. And you go, all right, well, all right. And then, I mean, that's, that's like uh, getting calluses. That's the equivalent in TV of getting good, strong, working calluses. Exactly. I don't know. Uh, Amy, what do you guys do on Eureka? Because that also has a very... Uh, interested fan base indeed we do um eureka fans are amazing i mean i've always sort of been i've had sort of my finger on the pulse of the blogosphere and twitter and and <laughs> i've tried to be on the vanguard of that stuff for for uh 
since it started. But, um, you know, and, and when I came to the show season four, um, I made a, an effort to sort of reinvigorate. Uh, we have a blog called Eureka Inscripted, which is great. Um, and all of the writers are on Twitter and all of the actors now are on Twitter. Um, and we just sort of like we want the fans to know that, you know, we realize that without them, we don't have a show. And um, in any way I can interact with the fans, I love it. Um, and I think it only does our show um, does good for our show. And um I just, I don't know. I get a kick out of it, to be mm -hmm. honest. Like, uh, there's there's something great. I mean, I got my start because I was a fangirl. So, I mean, f for fangirls to come up to me and say, I love your work, that's like the greatest thing I could ever hear. Sure. But there's also, you know, you've been very strict about saying, here are the things I won't listen to. Y yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't accept any form of a story idea being thrown my way over Twitter or over email. Um... Uh, I have to immediately block that person if they if they do that. It's just a way of protecting ourselves um, from sort of accidental inspiration. You know, mm -hmm. like if I if I read something and and I don't necessarily know that I was inspired from it, and then two years later we do a story on Eureka, and and I had no idea that that's how that little grain got into my you know cortex, and and now it's now this full fleshed idea. Um, I have to, so I have to, you know, we have to protect ourselves in that way, and it's just, a, it's just a legal thing. It's not anything personal. The fans get it. Um, I talk to them about pretty much everything else, what's going on in my life. I'm thinking about getting a dog, things like that. <laughs> oh, you should. Oh, you must. You no, really yeah. should. You should. Really no, no, should. no, no. It's, but the the kitten people are really fierce. <laughs> so I, I, it's it's been a struggle. <laughs> well, good night, everyone. <laughs> I think we've answered all your questions. <laughs> uh, we are going to get to your questions very soon, so please start thinking of them. Keep in mind that questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. Um, oh, that's good. Angelina, yeah. let's talk about uh, the cleaner and Memphis beat for a minute. Sure. Um, I'm interested, and this is actually sort of along the same lines. <clears throat> These are shows that walk the line of being a procedural. So I don't think they are strict procedurals. They're very character-oriented. Uh, that was the goal. Right. <laughs> so how did the room try to achieve that? Um, very differently. The cleaner, the cleaner was rough because the procedure of the cleaner. How many in the? How many people in this room have seen the cleaner? Oh wow! <laughs> Wait now by clapping. Oh look! Hi, Paul. How are you? Um, three people. Uh, there are three hundred people in this room. <laughs> <laughs> it's no longer on the air. Don't don't bother. Um, it was based on a real-life dude who, um, his name's Warren something, I can't even remember anymore, I blocked it out, um, who quite literally, he's like a sober companion, but the most intense, insane sober companion you can fathom. He goes into crack houses and pulls people out and locks them in hotel rooms until they get, until they sober up. He follow. I mean, it was, he always had somebody attached to his hip on set who was clearly at some stage of cleaning up. Um, so the procedure of it, and I come from a long line of drug addicts and alcoholics. I am blessed that I am not one myself yet. <laughs> I've only been writing TV for yeah. three years. There's Hang plenty in there. of time. Um, but I, you know, it's... You're adorable. <laughs> uh, she's drunk right now. Um, 
But I take that process very seriously as somebody who's had to live through it. But I also recognize it's totally fucking boring. <laughs> it, it is. Every addict's journey is exactly the same. And they think they're special. And of course you feel that way. You're in your own personal hell. I get it from an emotional <laughs> standpoint. But from a storytelling standpoint, it's not compelling. It's just not. So we all got in the room and we were like, okay, this is going to be great. We've got this guy with these great stories. Go. Right. Oh, shit. This show doesn't work. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the most terrifying experiences of my creative life. So we ground it out and we tried to make it work and we tried to shove it into this box. And the reason the show's no longer on the air is because the show fundamentally didn't work. And it's just an unfortunate reality that happens sometimes. It seemed like a great idea in pilot stage, but when you realize you've got to turn 13 out a year or 22 out a year, suddenly you're screwed. Um, so that that room was quite literally us beating our heads bloody against the whiteboard. Yeah, um, how far in did that realization come? Couple weeks. Yeah. yeah. Real quick. Real quick. <laughs> did it change the focus of the show? No, because I ask as a big fan. The, ne <laughs> the network wouldn't let us. They wanted a procedural. And every time we tried to shove it in a more character direction, like we had this bottle episode idea that I was going to write that was going to be literally, you know, 24 hours in a room with William and an addict and just it'd be like in treatment or something. No, 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 no. They didn't want that. Um, which is fine. That's the show they bought. We're trying to give them the show they bought. This is a business. It's commerce. I get it. Um, but it just, it didn't work. Uh, so that show's gone. Memphis Beat, um, you know, it was the, the creators, Liz and Josh, came into the room with such an unbelievably clear vision of what they wanted the season to be. They had the characters arced out. They had it up on the board. They had rough areas already figured out. So it was really, uh, the room was just us filling in the details. Like, okay, this is Dwight's arc. This is, you know, we didn't have to do any of that character work. So the work was, okay, what's the turn at the end of Act 2? What's the clue he finds? Um, in my brain, I'm not, I was, I said when I was an assistant. This is hilarious. I said, I will never work on a procedural. <laughs> I said, I don't care how long I have to be getting other people's coffee. If, if Jerry Bruckheimer comes to me and offers me a CSI some city, I will turn him down. I don't want to work on a procedural. And everybody laughed at me and they told me I was insane and clearly I was. And of course, the first job offer I get is on a procedural. And of course, I took it because, duh. Um, but, but my brain doesn't work that way. I'm not, it's math. Properly structuring a procedural is math. Math. It is hard work, and you have to really buckle down and break these things down and understand them. Um, and that didn't come naturally to me. I'm, I just was starting to figure it out at the end of Memphis Beat, and now, thank God, I'm on a show that's totally character-driven and has absolutely no procedural elements, and I'm in heaven. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but there you go. No. Um, <laughs> uh, ben this and Amy, uh, you guys are also both currently on fairly procedural shows. How do you balance uh, the character stuff with the procedural elements, or how does the room do it? Ben, let's start with you. Um. Yeah, well, uh, Supernatural still has its procedural elements. It was more so initially. It's gotten into this kind of takedown Judeo-Christian architecture. <laughs> thing. It's a very peculiar um, pursuit. But uh, yeah, like, uh, well, there is. It's like very much. It's um, it's like big math. I consider like um, there's a there's a finer math to um, comedy and scaring people which comes down to this very kind of precise engineering and timing and like pulling away expectation, whatever. Um, and then there's this like 
These brute plot mechanics of, like, well, he couldn't possibly know that. Someone calls him on his cell phone, goddammit. (laughs) Well, his friend calls him from the morgue. Oh, thank God. I mean, like, you're in constantly this place of, like, people trying to unveil these mysteries. It's mystery writing. Procedural is basically just the TV version of how to write a mystery. And so you get brought up, like, I don't know, balancing that stuff with character. We're pretty character heavy. Um, we're essentially melodramatic um, or operatic or something. So the the procedural beats, we're always very pleased when we get, oh, yes, he finds the matchbook that brings them to the hotel. I mean, that's the classic, but like, oh, we found a matchbook. I mean, that's a placeholder for, yay, we have, he's got a clue. It works, it tracks, it makes sense, it brings us to the next scene, the next place. But um, ultimately, I too would be, I don't know what I would do on like a CSI or one that has still less kind of character development because I'm not sure I don't know what I I mean there's too much research involved I think it's too real life would you want to swing far the other way I mean Angel is fairly procedural as well it's true if you when you were on it it was I think TV lends itself to some form of procedure as a rule I mean I think there are shows that allow themselves like when they get deeply into character they become procedure becomes um not the most relevant aspect because character becomes the most relevant aspect and you can call it essentially a soap opera, not to be kind or unkind, but you're talking about the interweaving lives of people and then you're really in a very character-oriented place. That's whole. That's a whole place to be and then there's procedurals and then there are the hybrid of the two. So the ones that have, like when the cop goes home, talks to his wife, you're kind of half soap opera and half procedural. When the cop stays on the job and doesn't, and just kind of like kibitzes at the water cooler, then you're a full-on procedural, and you better know a body of facts. You actually, it will track best if you um, really get. You become a mechanic. You might not like working under the hood of the narrative. I'm not a big fan, but it's it's occasionally fun, you know. Like. <laughs> uh, Amy, how do you guys approach a story on Eureka these days? Teaser out. Carter gets slimed. <laughs> act two out. Act one out. Um, you know who that guy we thought was behind it? It's not him. Oh, that's right. Um, I'm so surprised. Act three out. Um, <laughs> you know that thing we thought was responsible for the thing that guy did that didn't turn out to do what he did? Oh, it's not that either. <laughs> act three out. Oh my God, it's going to kill one of our people. Act four out. It's not just going to kill one of our people. The whole is going to blow up. <laughs> Act five out. We've totally saved the day. <laughs> uh, that's what I miss. Whistle the theme. If I could whistle the theme, I would totally do. No, that's the way the show was broken before I got there. Um, when I got there, sort of part of, I think, my... That's own, why I said these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My own personal mandate was sort of to bring a little more sort of... Um, uh, Ingenuity to the procedural elements that we that we do on our show, and um, and I mean we started off by basically sending the cast back into time, and when they came back, their world was different. We did this for a number of reasons. A time travel is awesome. Um, B there was some things that weren't working quite that well on the show that and doing this gave us a chance to reset those. And this was when a few of you new people came in. How many yeah, years yeah, had yeah. it been on? Um, it had been on three three full seasons by wow. that point. Um, and one of the other reasons we did it too was there were some things that the show did that we liked that it had been dropped. 
And so we basically hit the reset button and, and we reinvigorated the show. Um, we got to bring back characters. Um, I don't know if you guys are Eureka fans, but we brought back characters like um, Sheriff Andy, who's now a full-time deputy on the show, that he was just a one-off character. And my first day on Eureka, I was like, um, I really love Sheriff Andy. <laughs> um, and, and we missed some of the sort of like the character um, relationships had sort of gotten into a little bit of a funk maybe. Um, and so it gave us a chance to sort of like breathe new life into the characters and how they relate to one another and um, add some friction that perhaps weren't there before. Um, they have a different understanding of, you know, the people now. And um, that's sort of just been the launching point for a whole season of episodes. And, and um, right now we're shooting in the middle of shooting season five. And um, we did something else crazy at the end of act four that allows us, or the end of um, season four that um, has allowed us again to sort of like, you know, again, breathe, breathe life into the show. And so every year it's sort of like been reinvigorated and we're all invigorated and we really love what we're doing. And um, the people who were there from the beginning, Jamie Paglia, who created the show, he's just over the moon happy. Like we go to work at 10, we get home at five. We, um, we love each other. We hang out on weekends. We have Margarita Fridays. Um, it's like, it's like cake. It's like, it's like getting to eat cake all day. Um, <laughs> That is the best job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cake um, all day. <laughs> so, so it's uh, it's it's just sort of, and, and because we sort of like are enjoying the story break process now, and it, it's just become something that's. Um, we we just have fun doing. We get we get there in the morning and and it's like you know okay what episode are we on? All right, let's kill it and we do. <laughs> and, and it's just it's just sort of it's just a joy. I know it sort of veered off into happiness and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Amy's floated off yeah. in the corner. Uh, but tell me, like besides all of you really being invigorated by the new energy on the show, it must be the right mix of people in the room also. Oh we, yeah, um, we. What does that room need or what does it have that that you? think you're getting here i think it it actually has the most diverse writing staff um on television perhaps um both gender wise and and um ethnically um it also has a mixture of people who are are sci-fi bucks buffs and science buffs that aren't necessarily the same thing um and and people who are into procedurals uh, i have a procedural background too um and i have a comedy background and i wrote soap operas and I, it's bad um <laughs> Um, but it's it's just a sort of like a really interesting mixture of pieces of people, and you never really, you know, it, the ideas come from everywhere. I mean, we'll read a Wired magazine story, and we'll get inspired by something. Someone will talk about their weekend. We'll get inspired by something. Um, you know, it's you know, someone will make a trip out to you know some sort of laboratory. I grew up in um, the Bay Area, so I, I know a little bit about uh, the Lawrence Livermore Labs, and I can bring that to the table and. Um, it's 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 just a really great group of people who uh, who vibe really well. Um, everyone that we had on staff season four, every single person came back season five. That's that's unheard of. That does not happen. Um, and it's just because it just worked out so well. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. Like you know, we had a great season um, critically and and emotionally, and. Uh, and and so why why change anything? And everybody wanted to come back. I mean, that, that's where you have a show where everybody wants to come back, let alone everybody's allowed to come back. Um, so uh, no, it's it's just been great. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> 
I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's insane. Um, let's talk for just a brief second about developing your own material. Have all of you done this? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's hear about it. Whoever wants to, whoever wants to jump in. What's what's the process been like? Angelina, let's start. Me? Oh, God. <laughs> What's um, the process been like? What was the material, if you can talk about it? Well, this is yet an... I'm, you guys are going to leave here and be like, that bitch. <laughs> um, my stepmother is Callie Corey. She wrote Thelma and Louise. And, uh, I know. See, I told you. That bitch. That bitch. Warned you. Um, so. Did you develop the Thelma and Louise sitcom? Yes. I heard it was great. That was me. It was hilarious. It's a real shame they didn't pick Ended it up. Ended the same way every week. Yeah, exactly. It was like, it was like Toons is the driving cat. They were in a different vehicle every time. Um, I got so, the wrong change. Sorry. The thing about Callie, Callie's brilliant. She's an amazing writer, but she's slow as fuck. She's a feature writer. Um, and she's never, she'd done one pilot with Stephen Bochco, but Bochco was, you know, driving that train. Um, so she had a meeting with a couple producers, um, and they sort of came up with this idea about uh, a young lawyer who is secretly a former con artist. And she ran away from her family and came up with a whole new identity and sent herself to law school and is now a DA in, the, in, in New York. And her family comes back into her life and tries to fuck her. That's the long and the short of it. And she called me and she's like, I really don't want to do this alone. Does this sound like something you'd be interested in? I was like, oh, Callie Corey's asking me to write a pilot with her? I guess I'll find time in my schedule. Sure, why not? Um, So we broke it together and I wrote the draft. And, you know, it was the pilot season where nothing sold. Especially not shit from women. It was Deadline. Deadline had that article up. It was like worst season for pilots for women ever. I was like, oh, ha. Huh. Um, it didn't hurt that Callie Corey's name was on the title page. Um, but it was, I have to tell you, the most frustrating creative experience of my life thus far. And I hope that. Uh, all of my, and I'm continuing to develop stuff um, that's not going anywhere at the moment because I'm Lionsgate. <laughs> they lock you down. <laughs> They're like, don't breathe unless you run it by us first. Um, so, but it was, there was such tension and dissent between the producers, the studio, and the network. It was, um, it was Fox and. T- Warners? I can't even remember who the studio was at this point, but nobody was on the same page about what the show was. So I was incredibly clear, Callie and I were incredibly clear on what we wanted the show to be and what we thought the show was, and nobody else agreed with us. But nobody else agreed with each other either. So it was doomed from the start. I wrote three drafts, all of them completely different versions of the show, and it was like, you know, the producers love one draft, the studio loves this draft, and the network loves another draft, and everybody just threw up their hands and were like, thanks so much, here's your check, have a nice life. (laughs) So um, it's Developing is a mess, man. That's my experience. It's hard. Yeah, it's absolutely hard. Somebody else want to tell a happy story where they're joyful and eat cake all the time? I love how you assume I have a happy story. So let me tell you about my meeting last week. No, I, um, I've, I guess, have been fortunate enough and also cursed enough to be working so much that I don't actually get a chance to develop my own stuff. Um, until now, um, this is going to be my my first um, season where I, I sort of go out and pitch stuff because I've always been in the experience of like having contracts with the people I work for where like I can only really develop with them whether it's a first look or you know guaranteed whatever, um, and it you know my ideas are so weird like <laughs> like it's really not right for the people I work for necessarily and um, would you can we actually step back for one second sure. and talk about that 
process because you are you have this deal and you have to take them ideas, right? Right. Uh, and I ran into you at a coffee shop and you were like, I have to think of things. Don't look, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. If you want to get me more coffee, you can. I have I'm thinking of things. And you uh, that was that day turned into something you pitched to them, right? Yeah, but it did, the, but they didn't you want. You thought of things. No, no, uh, well, <laughs> you know, it's this is this is sort of the thing that happens. Like you get you'll get a call from one of your executives on the show you're working on and say, hey. We, we really want to develop with you. Don't tell the other writers on the show. <laughs> um, and I'm like, okay. And then I tell all the other writers on the show. <laughs> um, no, I don't do that. Um, but um, and then, then they, you know, they'll call you in for a meeting, and um, which, by the way, for leaving at like you know noon for a meeting on the lot. <laughs> Pretty sure the other writers know what you're up to, um, but you know, bygones. Um, so, so you know, you go into these meetings and they'll tell you in advance, like, "Hey, so we're looking for this, or we're looking for that, or we're." Um, they'll give you sort of areas that they're thinking about, and so you know, they gave me an area, and um, by the time I had a chance to go in and pitch, because you know, I do work for a living, um, they, uh, I pitched this insanely awesome version of what they wanted and um, they said oh my god we love it so much if we only we didn't buy two of those last week <laughs> so that, that was my, my experience um, which is why you know my my contract with Eureka is up in August um, they're going to try to probably lock me down again um, in which case I have to use this time wisely <laughs> um, so, so who has an idea <laughs> yeah no, I, no I I have one actually, and I'm super excited about it. I was working on it earlier today, and I and what, but what happens though is you know your agents um, or agent um, will call you in for a meeting. They're like, hey, let's talk development, and you never really know what that means. No. It's like they have something that they want to pitch to you, or they want to hear your ideas, sort of. Um, and and then so I went in and I pitched like five different things to my agents, and um, they proceeded to yell at me and nitpick everything that I was saying. And then at the end, I was like, well, you know, there is this other thing that I, I kind of like but I don't know what it is yet and then I s pitched it for like 30 seconds and you know they were quiet for about two minutes <laughs> um, and then they looked at each other and said um, yeah that's the one so <laughs> that's the one I'm working on and um, and so you know it's 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 crazy I, I'm not really sure how much what to expect because this is my first time I'll be going out and, and pitching and hopefully getting multiple people interested in one thing rather than the person I work for interested in something that I have <laughs> to pitch them um, so it's it, it's it's gonna be a little scary and a little intimidating and um, but um, you know I think it's just one of those things where you have to have confidence in your ability to deliver what you think is a good show and if, if you believe it's a good show sometimes you can convince people um, even if it's not <laughs> uh, Ben what's your experience been like developing uh, original material developing uh, original material has been oh, not pleasant but, um, <laughs> See? Yeah, it's not. It, I mean you, that's where you go directly into the mouth of the lion and you go oh God, masticate um, uh, but there are two, like, I ran down exactly the wrong road. I mean, I did something for sci-fi a while back where I had, like, a kind of overall deal with Fox, and I was supposed to sell a pilot somewhere, and uh, sci-fi, I said, yes, okay. And I did that thing. I was in New York, and I, uh, I would be in, like, a bar and then in a coffee shop, and I was trying to think of things. I was doing the same thing, yeah, yeah. right? Just doodling and drawing and thinking, and it's just, like, 
what a weird thing to have to do. I need to come up with the next five years of my life. Um, like, and it has to have between 13 and 22 installments of like saleable story every fucking time. Um, and I, I thought I came up with, oh, yeah, it'll be called Witch Doctor. And it's like, uh, and it was almost something. But I made this mistake. It was like semi-procedural. It, was, it had a supernatural element. It had a, a, like a procedural element. But basically, my thing was like it was like a witch doctor medical practice. It, it boiled down to a faulty uh, engine, so it would have been not unlike the experience um, uh, you were describing with the cleaner, which is oh, at the end they make up a cure because it's magic and voodoo. So who gives a shit? Like, 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 oh yeah, they use the bowl with the special thing and they put the dough. They, they, and you like so that like at the moment where you're supposed to have the peak like oh good they're so clever I like how they did that I would have done that in that position no no they dig a hole to the and then yeah like just completely meaningless stuff and it was guaranteed to ultimately resolve itself in that meaningless sphere as per how it was sold I sold it so aggressively pitching is the other thing uh, careful like you should know what you pitch before you pitch it although it might be impossible I've pitched so many things that seem so perfect and so right in the room and I've made people believe me <laughs> that's not what you want like six months later they're going like and they still believe you and you're actually the only one who's saying you know what that was a, a horrible enigma of lies it was like a it was a honeycomb of just of like I wish um, yeah so uh, with Witch Doctor it proved to be um, that's one of the things to be really careful about there's two kinds of TV one has a very reliable formula for every episode and you want to have that in place usually if you're going to really like shit through a goose get to television um, the other one comes I think after you've developed some staying power with the people who actually pull strings. That's how David Chase, I think, made Sopranos. I think that's how Vince Gilligan is pulling off Breaking Bad. I mean, these things are like, they're, they're not formulaic, but they, it's good to have a good, some kind of franchise, I think, um, in order to kind of break through the, the, the basic haze of what's viable when you're not a um, full-on standalone entity of like, and, and uh, Wow, it takes a lot to get there. I've never been there. The full-on full standalone, oh, hey, he's walking in. We want to buy it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, what is it? Oh, robots? Good. We, we want to buy it. No. Um, but um, I think uh, the other aspect, so some kind of franchisable thing. Uh, I, in my experience, I made a faulty franchise, and then I had to write a pilot for it, all the, way, all the way, while thinking that, wow, if I sell this, I'll end up in the place you were in, yeah. which is like, wow, this is not a show. Only I, it's my show. <laughs> so that's going to be a lot of pain that I have to get involved in in the future. And the other one is when you know you've got something, or when you, you'll always know that you've got something. You might be wrong, but that's, just keep rolling with it, doesn't matter. Then pitching becomes the other thing, which is to pitch well, dynamic, try to stay away from detail. I've never pitched well. I've just, uh, sometimes momentum of personality has gotten it over, but like, uh, <laughs> like minimum details. Really think about it as if you are designing a toy for the audience to play with, and you're just talking about play value. You know, like, here's the play value of this thing. You don't really think of it in terms... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, all right. Um, but like basically, <laughs> well, it, you can't remember that until the end of the, okay. Um, but yeah, you really want to speak in these terms that just like engage everybody and you don't want to get too much into, oh, at the end of that season, this is what's going to happen. You really want to talk about playability because the audience is, they're just a bunch of children. No, that's what <laughs> Well, you know, pitching is actually an art form all in itself that's completely yeah. separate from actually... Development, creating. that's true. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of networks and studios that are requiring... It's a, it's a whole new world. Um, they're requiring you to basically come up with the first and possibly second season. They want a full Bible. They want you to go in mm. and it's like this whole song and dance where you're going to go episode by episode by episode. I hope it doesn't last. It's not going to last. I think it's just... <laughs> it's the most creatively insane thing I've yeah. ever heard. And they um, can't listen for longer than 20 minutes no. without glazing over exactly. I, like, that's a it's, lot of talking it's, it's madness work, and of course I think it was AMC that did it this last season and oh, they, yeah. Bought, yeah, yeah, yeah. they bought nothing they bought nothing right. they heard you know they six, developed seven, like yeah seven pilots yeah. and then they just bought and, none of them they and Pia, them. this is where you want the WGA to step in because it's like I didn't get paid for writing this bible are you kidding me yeah. I just did all this work for free and I don't sell my show <laughs> um, it's it really it's a ever since the strike everything sort of shifted the timeline has shifted it's all, I mean, we can all give you our experiences, but it's all shifting. It's all changing. Um, and it really, it's a, man, pitching is a skill I, I pray someday I can acquire. <laughs> it, it is a really interesting skill, and I, I'm not sure I have it yet. It's just, I mean, the, the sci-fi pitch went amazing, and I was shocked, and I got to mm-hmm. talk to Mark Stern for, like, um, an hour afterwards just about philosophy of the pitch. So it was, like, it was very weird. Um, but, um but for me, like, I'm such a room animal. Like, the writer's room is where I live and breathe, and and my, my pitching style is all sort of like, it's sort of like, it's like a, I'm like a sniper, you know? Like, I'll just come in and I'll hit you, and then I'll sort of like, hi. But if that works for you. Yeah, but like, great. yeah. There's I mean, like one dead guy in the room and two other executives <laughs> going, what the fuck happened? Oh my God. Oh no. Buy the show. Buy it. Medic. And that's how I get jobs. That's, um, that's good. No, Everyone do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, you know, it's 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 just in pitching in the room is so much different because it's it's more improvisational. Like you're just sort of you're hearing, you're listening, and then you're attacking, and then you're listening, and then you're attacking. Um, and <laughs> and very aggressive language. <laughs> It's hand to hand, though. We have, we have a very we have a very so. large staff, so occasionally you have to be heard. It's just mm-hmm. what happens. And only thirteen episodes. I know. Um, and uh, but but it's sort of like it's totally different muscles when you're when you're pitching a show than when you're when you're pitching in the room, like you know some story points and. Um, and I, I just don't know if I have the endurance for like you know to have the spotlight on me for like even ten minutes is is freaks me out like and and just knowing that you have to drive it and it's not like a thing that's driving itself right. it's yeah. completely different and something that I'm sure will take a lot of practice before you actually get really good at it. <laughs> yeah, unless, unless, up- I'm gonna buy Ben lunch later so he can tell me more about <laughs> pitching and I can uh, write stuff down. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, it's I'll come up lunch, on this. Oh, yeah. It's come up on this panel a few times that pitching 
plays to the exact opposite strength of, yes. as writing. Absolutely. You know, yes, we true. are by nature locked in rooms and fairly introverted. <laughs> the guy <laughs> who um, the yeah. guy who was the showrunner for the first season of The Cleaner, this guy Jonathan Prince, who I think I, don't, I know this is being recorded, but I don't think he would disagree with my saying he's not really a writer. I mean, he writes, but he's more of he's a sort a personality. of personality. Oh, <laughs> you know, JP. He's, I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he's a big picture guy. He comes into the room. He's a sniper. He comes in the room. He's like, you know. Uh, we want to do a, an episode on a TV set and she's a drug addict and she dies on the set. Go. And then he leaves, you know, and that's it. Um, but this, I have never in my life met a better pitcher. He is amazing. He will sit down at the table at lunch. He's like, okay, so I got this idea for a new show. Five minutes later, you're like, I want to watch it. What's the next episode? I have to know what's going to happen. It's mer- and I've, I've studied him and I've tried to pick it apart. And it's a personality thing. Yeah. It's this unbelievable faith and confidence in the story coming out of your mouth. Doesn't matter if it's good. Doesn't matter if it works. It's just you buy into him before yes. you even buy into the idea. Which is part of the risk. Yeah. Yeah. Like you are really selling, you're selling a dream. At that point, and then there's, and then you you're selling it to a bunch of people with money who don't agree with each other. (laughs) So you're like selling a dream to like a very fucked up head. And then you're going like, "What I want you to do is take up take that dream when you're driving to work tomorrow. You six people." Um, with your strange fucked up head and then I want you to turn that into a process by which something is rendered Um, have you all formulated your questions (laughs) (laughs) okay um, my question is um, did you start by writing prose or how did you start writing as a kid and then um, that's one question (laughs) is there a follow up is a follow up (laughs) <laughs> and um, how difficult is it for you if you do if you did start writing prose or in some other genre? How difficult is it for you to switch over to screenplay format? Yeah, that's a good question. Interesting. What was the earliest writing that you guys did, and uh, how did you learn to write a screenplay? Because that's not something that comes naturally. Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Did you? Did, I learned did you read how the to. Scripts? Yeah, I uh. I got the scripts of The West Wing. Um, and I, I, I read them, then I put the episode on and I read them as I was watching the episode. And then I put the script away and I broke down the episode by scene and compared them. I mean, I did this with dozens of episodes. You understand that's not how you're supposed to read an Aaron Sorkin script. You're supposed to read an Aaron Sorkin script walking really quickly down the hallway. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is like script reading 101. People. Unfortunately, I was living in a studio apartment and I didn't have any hallways. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, what just, kind of writing had you done before that? Uh, I, I everything. I, I mainly wrote plays. That's how I started. But I mean, when I was a kid, I wrote prose and poems, and I I tried to ape. I have like pages and pages of notebooks of knockoff Anne of Green Gables novels that are just. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, I really, I recommend. I want to read those. I, they're really bad. Oh. They involve cherry trees and, you know, whatever. Um, but that's, I, that's inside humor. I don't know what that is. <laughs> you only get it if you read Anna The Anna of Green Gables boards um, are going to light up. No, no, no. I really, I do recommend just, and you can get them. This is the great thing about the internet. You can get scripts of anything. Whatever show you love, whatever you sort of mechanically excites you and makes you think that is well made, like that's well put together, take it apart. Take it apart, put it back together take it apart again that's and then just writing you just have to keep you're gonna if you're just starting out you're gonna suck for a while you just are i you know my first half a dozen scripts blue i wouldn't show them to anyone um you just have to get practice man these guys have been doing it longer than i have though so my first one was amazing <laughs> oh, yeah. well clearly i got you a fucking a meeting with experience. joss whedon you asshole <laughs> i know <laughs> 
And they tried to they tried to market that thing of them talking about you so many times. Nobody would buy it. It was so weird. But. I also want to point out, though, in, in this context, Callie, my stepmom, Thelma and Louise was the first script she ever wrote. She, mm. won, she won an Oscar for it. Yeah. So maybe the first thing you write won't be shit. Maybe I'm completely <laughs> wrong. No, no, we've heard over and over again that, you know, the, the way to do this is to write and write and write. You right. know, that's, that's true. That's how you learn. Uh, but, you, but Ben, what, what kind of writing did ben. you do? <laughs> listen, listen. <laughs> I'm oh, over moderated. Um, uh, no. <laughs> um, Hi, Ben. I started, uh, uh, the very first thing that uh, struck me was. Um, First of all, I stole all of Charles Schultz stuff, which was gag strip. I mean, basically, like, you know, um, comic strips. And that was a form of writing, but very broken down narrative because I was drawing and writing it. So, so I'd take the peanuts and I would make them into birds. And I thought that was perfectly original. <laughs> like, oh, totally brand new. Oh, absolutely. No, it's a bird. It's not a dog. <laughs> Look at this. Woodstock is not a bird. He's a chipmunk. It's perfect. Um, but then, uh, and then I became. Because very early on, I mean, it's the same thing. Like, if you are driven to write, that's a good sign. That's usually what's taken place in the lives of most of the people that are probably here. It's like, it's come up, right? Um, I used to see, when I saw the first version of King Kong, 1939, when I was a kid, and I, I sort of thought that the television was some kind of, like, weather like it would come on and then, does anyone know about this? King Kong is amazing. So I novelized King Kong like with a typewriter. I started, to, uh, it was misty when the ship pulled into the harbor. And like, uh, so that people would know. And, like, uh, um, and there's something in that, like, but that's, and that developed into prose. I think prose is really good. One thing about prose is when you get into the um, act of writing screenplays, you have to become extremely rarefied with your prose. I used to not believe it, but it's really true. It's like, that's the biggest, I think, leap from prose to screenplay. You can find any form of, for, of um, format is relatively easy to pick up on. Um, at Sid Field is where I, I cracked open a book and it sort of was like, oh, this is how you, this is how you do format for scripts. I think engineering, the mechanics of how stories work, that's like really, it's good to sort of take those machines apart because that's a much more complicated way that things are working. That's about arcing and like plot mechanics and scene mechanics. But um, one of the things, prose is great because you learn the command of the word, words, and, and you get an ear for phrase and like that. But um, when you are, and I am already still, like, I mean, I'm writing an outline now for the show you work on. And like, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it's going to take me forever to actually, I'll write one and then I'll chop down the prose to make it like digestible um, because you want, prose wants to just sort of balloon out into this kind of world of detail. And if you love writing prose, then it sort of overtakes you. And then you find that your script is 30 pages too long. And a lot of that comes from scene description and wanting to like bring people treasures in prose that have no, it's the, it's not pearls before swine. It's like bringing swine into some place where you don't want swine. Very beautiful swine in a, in a pearl palace. What the fuck? I am going to. We'll get all. We'll get through this. Um, but the, like, yes. Please keep talking. Prose. Oh my God. It's a form of word bulimia. I'm going to be so much lighter at the end of this. Like, uh, but like. 
you do with prose. That's the caution. The caution is in prose, you can love words, but um, it's haiku in screenplays. You really feel great when you've turned um, a paragraph of prose that describes the action beautifully. You feel great when it's two lines and it has every piece of detail and it doesn't suck as writing. That's one of the things. I think I just made a realization about my writing because um, that's what we're here for. I I wrote scripts pretty fast when I got to town, and I I've never written prose. Like oh, yeah. I, that's never been something that's been a part of my life. Yeah. Um, I was always sort of like really into the visual medium, and like I had a um, my my parents' house was robbed when I was a kid. This is going somewhere, I swear. <laughs> and um, you know, my mom lost a lot of jewelry, and instead, and there's only like a certain amount you can claim, like you know, that you've lost. And so instead, she came to my brother and I were like, and said, "What do you want?" And I said, "I wanted a video camera." Hmm. And and so what happened is you know I just started making little short films and every time there was a project for sh- for school instead of doing something in the classroom I would record something and I would like put on little sketches and stuff on on camera and um, I would bring that into the class and it just sort of like it sort of ballooned and when I went to college I didn't I had no ambitions of being a writer like for most of my young life um, and I went to college not really knowing what I wanted to do and I I helped start a film club there and we just like started making little short films and it just got really exciting and then um, I had a couple professors come to me and say what the hell are you doing you should be in film school you're an idiot. Um, that really happened. You're an I, idiot. You should you know, be in film school. <laughs> Usually it's the other way around. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, no, I wrote, it was really interesting. I wrote, um, we were studying Hamlet, I think my freshman year that in college. a piece of shit play. No, it's, it's terrible. And it's really annoying to, to write about too. And, and so, she, you know, we had to analyze some like motivations in a scene or some bullshit. And, and so I, I, the only way I could make it interesting to me was if I like, I framed it as it was like a stage play and I was the director and I was informing the actors of how to play the part. Um, and you know my... it is a stage play, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get that. It's not a movie with Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> it is a movie with Kenneth Branagh. It is. Um, it's many things. But but you know, I, I I took a different tack than the other students in the class, and she came to me afterwards, and she's like, I I don't get you. Like you you think differently than everybody else, and I don't. Pretty sure you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> and, and this is what this is the professor coming to me to tell me this. And you know, I was like, yes, but I don't really belong a whole lot of places. So do you have suggestions? And she said, film school. Um, and then I transferred to film school the, the following uh, semester, and uh, and then just sort of fell in love with the process of again making shorts and and you know and making shorts is basically you you do have to like come up with stories and, and like frame an entire like episode of television in like six minutes. It's like <laughs> it really works your muscles and how to like generate like you know act outs and how to you know momentum and and was all it, of these things. Was it fairly easy then for you to start putting that stuff on the page? Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't. Um, I mean. You know, I started out writing half-hour comedy, too. So um, for me, making the leap from half-hour comedy to one hour was more dramatic than from not writing at all to writing. 
um, because it's just a different structure. I mean, it's it's just um, it's sort of mind blowing. It doesn't seem all that different. Instead of you know twenty two minutes of television, you're making forty one minutes of television. It doesn't seem like it's that different, but it's different. It's yeah. it's really different. Um, and and it's sort of like yeah. So I I feel like I've from all the different things I've done, I've worked a lot of different muscles. So. Uh, who else has a question? And I, I should remind you guys, keep the questions fairly general as that was. That was a great question. So anyone here can answer them. Step over here. Unless you know what kind of dog I should get. In which case, I will take my uh, We'll talk after. Uh, I was wondering, in terms of breaking in, do you think it's worthwhile to try and get an agent or representation before you have an industry job? If you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, the way it generally works is if, you're, if your work is strong enough that an agent looks at it and thinks, I want to rep this person, but they're not making me any money right now, they'll what's called hip pocket you, um, which means when they have a little extra time, they'll send your shit out or they'll make a call for you. Um, and then you'll feel when you do get that gig that you got, by the way, on your own, because <laughs> that's the way it works. And suddenly you're about to make 10% for them. You're going to feel like, eh, yeah, I kind of got to go with this guy because he kind of made some phone calls for me. You, you don't. You go take meetings, go meet everyone, find somebody you love, find somebody you connect with. Um, I ended up with my agent because we were assistants who came up together. He was my boss's agent's assistant, and we were friends for years and years and years and just happened to rise at the same time. So again, it was a kismet sort of thing. But I just don't think, personally from my perspective coming up now when I did, I, I don't think it does you any good. I think you have to get your first job yourself. Um, and then, trust me, everybody will want to represent you. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean... That's frankly how it works, let alone how to do it. Because um, I, I mean, I don't know any agents that will read someone who's not currently on a show. Right. <laughs> like they just don't have that time, and and it, and unless you're, they're being personally recommended by like Ben Edlund, yeah. then then they'll read, they'll take the time to read maybe. your script. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Depends um, what agency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not CAA. Um, but uh, but I mean, if I had to give advice on how to break into writing and any kind of writing feature writing this this goes for to get a pa job get a pa job on a television show um it seems like it seems like grunt work and you know you need to you know smile your way through handing out coffee a lot of the time but if you work hard if you smile if you're a nice person um you will you will ascend very quickly and like on our show um all of our interns that um, that have really sort of like gone above and beyond the call of duty of, uh, end up as assistants, and our assistants end up as script coordinators, and our script coordinators end up as writers. Um, that's happened from the very beginning of Eureka. It continues to happen now. Um, our our writer's assistant last season is now our staff writer. Um, our our script coordinator we just brought onto the staff halfway through the season as a writer. Um, and it's it's just sort of that's how you get it done. And then you get that job, and then you call every agency and say, "Hey, look, I'm working. Everyone will want to meet you." That's just how it works. <laughs> it's it's no one wants to meet you unless you 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 have proven yourself to be able to be employed. Yeah. It sucks, but that's what it that's what happens. And I I do want to make the point because I should have made it in my very first little how to break in fandango. Um, it, it's not. The PA and the assistant and the grunt work isn't just about making the connections, although that's crucial. Um, I, 
I am so blessed that I worked on the production side of things before sliding over to being a writer's mm. assistant. Because I'm telling you right now, as a staff writer, as a low-level writer, I know more than a lot of producers about how shit gets made. And when you understand the mechanics, literally, like, bu like bud budget lines, the reason this can happen and this can't, and I'm going to have to sacrifice this to get this, um, you turn in a script that's shootable. I mean, I, I have been complimented by everybody I've ever worked for that my first drafts are shootable. They need to be tweaked and they're not quite story-wise right, but from a production standpoint, nope, I'm not breaking anybody's budget. And that makes you employable. People want to keep working with you because you don't make their lives more complicated. It so also, pay attention. <laughs> it also actually makes you, in a strange way, it makes you potentially one of the grown-ups Mm -hmm. At meetings, like um, there's a there's a di distinction. It's like there, you have dreamers and and kids who want to do all kinds. Of, oh, I want to set the whole set on fire, and and like, all right, okay, well, okay, we'll we'll talk now. Um, and then there are people, and this is really important, like from the production sort of standpoint, as far as like this is not the getting in, but the, when you're there, like um, or the value of getting in on the production side. Um, you are able to actually take part in logistics discussions or you can you'll occasionally find yourself allowed to still be there when there's a logistics discussion going down um, I mean that's a that's an important thing I, I as far as like agents go I think that like probably anyone you get it's very rare that you would, you would find someone of a station some sizable that they can contribute to your endeavor uh, who's going to read something and like just back it out of a vacuum yeah I know? mean I think the way I've seen it work is when when you're talking to the assistants that are on um, on desks mm -hmm. those assistants you know eventually the ones that are good become agents and and yeah. occasionally as assistants if if they're your buddy they will slide your script into a package that they're sending off to a showrunner because, um, right. you know, what's the harm, right? So, <laughs> so you know, they, they are working out for themselves, too, because the way they rise is because is they, they start bringing in clients. And, and I wouldn't even look at a, at a person who's already an agent. I'd always look at the agent's assistants. Right. You know? If you're at that place, yeah, then yeah, you're absolutely. in a position to begin. Well, they always say in film school, network. Yeah, right. it's, uh, it's apparently true. And they're very powerful agents' assistants. <laughs> the good yes. ones are anyway, because they know how to work it. Uh, I get my agents' assistants' birthday gifts. I'm just saying. Yes, and oh, Christmas yeah. presents. And yes. Christmas, absolutely. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, we're, we're having a little we're chat. About right. TV. Um, since everyone wants to see original material from writers not becoming writers these days, can you speak a little bit about what you look for in original material when you're bringing in a writer, and also how closely? you know it needs to be to what you're doing i mean does it just need to be within the genre are you just looking at the character stuff because obviously you know a, a writer can't write something that's very specific just to your show as a sample well for me it's it's less um what genre it is as much as it is what tone it is um because i need to know that you'd be able to write the tone of our show. Um, and that's something that is very specific, especially for a show like Eureka, which is a science-based procedural with a hell of a lot of comedy in it. <laughs> and you're not going to find a whole lot of specs that have that, but but it's it's sort of lighthearted, but it's serious when it needs to be. Um, there's heart where there needs to be heart. And um, I mean, it for me, that's what it's about. It's about the tone. And, and what I'm looking for in originals is... Um, 
also would never read an original without reading a spec too by the way in order to hire somebody i'd always want to read a spec in addition to an original because i want to be able to know that you can copy someone else's voice because that's your job as a staff writer to copy your showrunner's voice um and if i am not convinced you can do that i'm not going to hire you um but what i mean originals are, are great because they can they show your imagination they show what you could possibly bring to the show as far as you know story ideas is this person clever um does this person have a good story instinct as far as you know do they know where the act breaks are supposed to go um <laughs> which is which is much harder to do in a spec pilot than it is in a in a spec of an oh, yeah. existing show because you know a lot of shows have very strict formatting and you can you can take scripts from like a west ring and, and you can know how the acts end and you can you can model a spec um of a show like that and, and know exactly what you're doing but you know in a spec pilot like i mean it's that's all up to you so if you can actually make something that has great pacing and 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 the act outs are great that's impressive and if you make i mean the originals are a showcase for who you are it's a voice showcase and the spec thing is really important because that's where you surrender your voice and you get down to the brass tacks of actual television writing right. and both are really important but um dialogue like i mean they, it depends on also what you're searching for cuz mm -hmm. people like uh, uh the the hiring on a show they're often trying to fill it's it can be like a baseball team. You have positions. You have people who are great in the room. You have excellent breakers. You have people who always turn in drafts that need if they need anything they need plot restructuring because the break was faulty. But like they the the dialogue is perfectly tuned to ear and stuff. What you want is the full complement of that in every writer. That'd be great. <laughs> but ultimately, you start to work with the realities of the system and of just people. So um, I think one of the things. It's really good to study dialogue, really important to um, – because that makes tone. Like mm -hmm. tone in a television script is the dialogue. And it's the um, – listen to how – I mean this is classic stuff, but like listen to people speaking. Listen to how they talk. Listen to the rhythms. Also, one thing that I think you find in um, uh, like scene work when uh, experience is limited – Scenes can take place for pages and nothing takes place. You have people exchanging lines, but you should consider the possibility that there's a ball called authority in a, in a situation between characters and like it gets tossed. Oh, stop it. Um, but like, uh, He's good. I mean, like, but you toss the ball and you actually feel the dynamic shift. Oh, wow. Huh? Yeah, she said that. Oh, no. And then, like, oh, yeah, but I said this. And then, like, you feel, you feel real dynamic movement. You feel waves of um, event. Oh, I had a conversation last night and I still want to talk about it. That's a scene. Most TV does not put the camera on a situation where, oh, there's a guy playing video games and he ran out of pretzels. Uh, like, like a, there's got to be community two people. And, yeah. and it would be hilarious. That's an awesome show about nothing. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and I, I want to speak at that from a, from a perspective of somebody who's still looking to get hired all the time because I'm not yet in the place of reading and hiring people, though I can well be. Oh, yeah. Um, Hell yeah. Uh, write what you love. Don't even write what you know. Write what you love. Um, the job I'm on now, this job is my dream job. This show was meant for me. It's political, <laughs> it's dark, it's Machiavellian, it's fucked up. 
Um, and it's I, called Boss. Order it on Stars. Stars, October twenty first. Um, no, but I, you know, I wrote a. I spent a year on the Obama campaign. I traveled all over the country. I gave up my life. I worked my ass off, and I wrote a pilot inspired by that experience um, and dealing with. Uh, the sort of underbelly of what politics actually is, not left versus right, but the reality of how fucked up this this government of ours is. And that pilot got me this show. Um, would it get me a gig on Eureka? Probably not. But as much as I enjoy genre stuff, that's not what I'm most interested in writing. That's just not my bag. Um, so if you write what you love, you're going to get a job you love because you're gonna, that connection is going to get made. If you're trying to force yourself into a bunch of different boxes, so like I have this really diverse portfolio and I can write anything, do you really want to write anything? Like if you write a badass CSI spec and you had to like bang your head against the wall to get out and then you get a job on CSI, like do you want that You're going to be on CSI. Yes, I, motherfucker. <laughs> By the way, you're going to be rich as fuck. Well, that's, that, that's the best that's argument for pigeonholing yourself I've ever heard. Like, most of us are, like, trying to fight to get out of, like, the genre box. Because, like, you know, I mean, I personally have experienced where, like, no one wants to hire me for anything other than genre because I'm genre girl. I'm the one you hire on genre shows when you're shutting up. So, I mean, for me, it was like, I have to write a pilot spec so, to prove that I can write shit that's not genre. Um, which I did. <laughs> um, but it wasn't CSI, because God forbid. Um, by, by the way, Jerry Bruckheimer's a genius. We and love CSI Jerry is Bruckheimer. A show. And Ann Donahue. And, <laughs> yes, all of them. And Carol all... Mendelssohn. He's a very tall and man Zucker, with a giant All great people. <laughs> That's all the time we have for tonight. Please give a round of applause to 826LA, Nerdist Industries here at Meltdown Comics, and our panelists, Amy Berg, Angelina Burnett, and Ben Edlund. Thank you, guys. Now leaving Nerdist.com.